Greetings Grapple fans and welcome to the latest instalment of Rerun the Rivalry, the December special in the Let Me Tell You Something podcasting calendar, in which myself, you Let Me Tell You Something co-host Lorca Mullen and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host Simon Cross, discuss a match that's part of a multi-episode arc of encounters that tell a whole narrative hopefully from start to finish, although this is the Seemingly, the way that it's pitched at the time is the end of this series, but we're not even halfway, technically. Simon, what match are we on today? We're talking about a match that takes place at the 2013 instalment of King of Pro Wrestling, put forward by New Japan. It is, obviously, Hiroshi Tanahashi and Kazuchika Okada, once again for the IWGP heavyweight title. However, Hiroshi Tanahashi, to get this match... Had to, in the words of Don Corleone, make an offer that Kazuchika Okada couldn't refuse. So Tanahashi gets this title match, but on the caveat that that if he loses, he can never challenge Okada for the title again. Which will make you wonder, how are we only halfway through? Well, we'll get to that in due course. And because of that stipulation, this match is, in many ways, because, you know, again, we just go for it from the start. Okada does win this match. In so many ways, it is presented as if it is a culmination. And there are multiple callbacks to various matches within their rivalry, various finishes. And also, the way that Hiroshi Tanahashi wrestles this match is with a sense of desperation. And because of that, it is probably the most one-sided match in this whole series. At moments, I made a note, like, this is getting close to Shibata Okada levels of control that Hiroshi Tanahashi has in this match. And so whilst I do still think that this is the trilogy of matches where Okada is ultimately the protagonist, if you are following it from Hiroshi Tanahashi's point of view, this does feel almost like a a last stand, if you will. He goes deep into his box of tricks, and we see a bit of dark side Tanahashi in this. We see as close as Tanahashi comes to being a heel within New Japan. When he's done Invasion, he's taken part in, like, Noah's storylines. He even took place took part in the Champions Carnival at least once in all Japan. Oh, cool. When they had talent exchanges in place, where I'm sure he has played up more the heelish elements to it. But this is one where now Okada is fully, like, babyface as far as things go. I mean, to the point that at the end of the match, he gets attacked by the Bullet Club in anticipation for the next match in (laughs) Okada's defence schedule. But ultimately, the story is that, and I was saying that this does feel like the final chapter of an internal trilogy of matches that have been in April, the G1, and this October match. You use your Venn diagram uh, analysis last, uh, was it last episode? Yeah, or the one before. Where it is Okada really stating, at least as far as like, as in-ring wrestlers, that he is the superior to Tanahashi now. Because Tanahashi, as you say, goes into every trick he's got in the box, or in the bag, or wherever it is you you keep your tricks. Yeah. At your top hat, maybe. I bet Tanahashi would rock a top hat. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) And just Okada is able to weather through it all. And Mm. everything that Tanahashi tries to hit him with just isn't enough. And this is the final test, you could argue, of of Okada. What you think is the final test of, like, being able to absorb all the attacks and taking on someone at their best. That whole idea that, you know, winning the belt is one thing, holding on to it is another. And it's also significant, I think, that all the first two matches in their series and three of the first four matches in their series 
since Okada's return. You know, we keep not mentioning the first match, but it sort of doesn't count, if you know what I mean. It's a prelude. It's like a prequel. It's yes. um, It's in the ether, really. It's an amuse-bouche. <laughs> it's an avatif, or whatever the <laughs> terms are. This is like a... The, holding on to it, like this is the first time that Okada has successfully defended the title against Tanahashi. Yeah. Which makes it strange, really, that Tanahashi would make such a risky bet at this point. And what's also important, I think, within this, like, sextology, or however you want to call it, is the length of time between those matches. Just looking at it here. You say it's strange that Tanahashi's made this bet. Is it? He's thrown the kitchen sink at Okada a couple of times and not been able to get the job done. My point is, you wouldn't think that literally every time that you've fought him for the title where you're the challenger, you've beaten him before this. Mm. You wouldn't think that just your second challenge would be my second and last challenge. I don't know, he's a prideful man. I think that the reason for it was that whoever won this match would then probably go on to Wrestle Kingdom. And Tanahashi's like had this crazy run of like major main event Wrestle Kingdom matches. It's kind of similar to when WWE tried to do that with John Cena. Like, oh, I don't have a WrestleMania match, and I'll end up watching it from the stands. Stupidity. Except, you know, it's not Vince McMahon. It's Gado in 2013 booking this storyline. That was an aberration. But if you look at the stats here, from the first match that they have since Okada's return on the 12th of February 2020 2012 to this match on the 14th of October 2013 they've had six matches and like I said ultimately like two mini trilogies within them that Okada's come out three wins to Tanashi's two wins and the one time limit draw mm. and those matches have all taken place over 610 days making it an average of 120 days between each match so that means that basically for every four months, they've been having matches against one another. But then the next match that they have takes 447 days until it happens. And then it's a full calendar year before the match after that. So this is the end of it as sort of being what everything's building up to in the short term. From now on going forward, to finish off this storyline as far as the passing of the torch element of it. Because we've still got two more matches to go with that story. Yeah. They space it out a lot more. Mm. Maybe also because Okada is a face along with Tanahashi outside of this storyline. So therefore, they're not necessarily on opposing sides as much because it's now going to be the Bullet Club that's the focus going forward. And there, Yeah, there's, there's a big dark cloud on the horizon that they need to deal with. Yeah. And also because soon after this, right, basically after Wrestle Kingdom, is when AJ Styles puts himself into the mix and then... Like we say, the Bullet Club becomes the focus of the key storyline within New Japan, then becomes New Japan versus the Bullet Club, and Chaos versus the Bullet Club. But yeah, this does feel like, you could have said this is the closing chapter if you wanted to, because it does feel like everything, like even from the start, the start is at Tanahashi repeating their first ever match, the, the one that we sometimes forget to mention, because he's <laughs> controlling him on the mat with a headlock. Yeah. And he, he goes for it early doors. There's no tense stare-down, which is apro-pro of their matches post-Okada Young Lion. I'm just going to launch myself at you and try and get out of their early doors. Well, yeah, Tanahashi's just like a face of concentration after he makes that his usual confidence, energetic, playing up to the crowd entrance. And this is probably also the least time that he spends 
playing up to the crowd, really. There's one moment when he's sort of willing himself up from the guardrail and he's looking out to the crowd, but he's not really playing it up particularly. Well, he sort of lost them temporarily at that point because of how he's acted. Well, yes, because he's done the playing possum, which is something that seems to have become a lost art in wrestling, really. No one ever does the mm. faked injury that much anymore. Bret Hart used to be a master at it, of course. At the minute in AEW, there is a real-life injury embellishment storyline they're currently doing. I think what it is with the curtain being peeled back so far, it's, it's a bit crass now. Like I think some fans find it crass. I think if you do it correctly, there's value in it. But it's it's very hard to do correctly, if that makes sense. Well, the crassness depends on what you're selling, I suppose. If it's like selling China getting her neck broken with a pile driver and then them putting on the same voices and kind of repeating moments from like Owen Hart's fall or anything like that mm. or having the ref literally employ the shoots cross arms thing I... like CM Punk uh, when he when Paul Heyman faked a heart attack to mock Jerry Lawler yeah yeah but that's not within the context of a wrestling match where you just suddenly fake out something to yeah get your opponent off balance and that is what happens in this moment where Tanahashi has kept control of the match for the longest time, like just by keeping him down on the floor on the mat basic, holding on to that headlock and wrenching it so hard that Okada's selling like he's touching his face after he gets out of it. And when he does his usual powering his opponent into the ropes or into the corner, instead of him doing the slapping them on the chest, he backs away to check his these faces alright. Yeah, there is no chest bat in this match. That that's just dawned on me. Because Tanahashi pretty much controls the first 10 minutes or so of this match. First with the grounded headlock and then with the fake-out knee injury uh, that then gives him the opening because he can't get it in sort of open play with Okada. So when Okada doesn't realise that the match is going on, he catches him first in an inside cradle and then when Okada gets up, that's when he goes for the knee. It's very very Croatian of Tanahashi. (laughs) But interestingly, he does go for the knee initially, but that seems to be just to ground him because almost immediately he then shifts his focus to what he'd done in the April match by just targeting the arm. And that's pretty much it from the from the goes on from there. It's returning to that arm work. That in itself is a sign of, in my mind, that, that Tanahashi realises the obstacle he's facing like throughout these thread of matches. Because it, it's not about the cloverleaf. It's not about... Like his usual methods of like dragon screwing someone's knee into oblivion, the rainmaker hurts him. It, it's it's stopped him before, so I need to stop the rainmaker. And the only time he was able to kick out of the rainmaker was after he'd hurt Okada's arm so much that it took him ages to pin him, which is a spot that's repeated again in this match. What's curious though is that Okada he takes his time to sell the arm really. Yeah. When after the first flurry of attack on Tanahashi, Okada goes on like the arm injury didn't work, and I was wondering is this bad selling on Okada's part, or if it's more he wants to try and make out to Tanahashi that all your stuff is doing isn't affecting me. Because after Tanahashi controls for the first five ten minutes or so of the match, Okada knocks him down to the mat, does his sprinting drop kick. And then does a nipper, yeah, as if to show, look at all that stuff you've done, and I can still do this. And trying to demoralise Tanahashi, that because Tanahashi is obviously trying to throw everything at him and not absorb as little punishment as he can, and it's still not 
bothered Okada. He takes him outside and then just beats the shit out of him on the outside again like he usually does. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, does he. Yeah, but then what's noticeable, I think, is when they do the forearm exchanges in the match, uh, stood up. Again, so many times there are exchanges in this match, forearm exchanges, which is like the thing, one of the things I was saying, let's just not do this for a year. There has not once in all the seven matches we've covered so far been a forearm exchange that I didn't think served a purpose in this match. Yeah, yeah. Every single time. And in this one, Okada's no selling, but then I noticed that when Tanahashi would hit him with an elbow and Okada would bend over, he would favour his arm. So it's like he thinks he's out of view of Tanahashi. Yeah. So for a moment he can just kind of check that his arm's okay and then stands back up. And it seems like either Tanahashi did see it, or he thinks that Okada's faking, because when he gets back in control, he immediately goes back to the arm, even though Okada's wanted him to think, no, that didn't help, so you better switch strategy. Yeah, the the experience of Tanahashi is very much at play here. He knows. He, he knows it's an act. <laughs> I do like, as well, the pacing of this match is very different to the other ones we've seen. I, I do like the frenzy. Uh, frenzied nature, the desperation that Tanahashi is showing. And I think it's what helps... It's it's perfect for the storyline. And it helps set the match apart from a previous encounter at the G1 and the one before that. Because the frequency of matches that you're, you brought up earlier, like we're, we're talking roughly once every 120-odd days, mm. you've got to freshen it up. You've got to have different aspects to it. Yeah. Well, you also assume that people might remember it more, what's happened recently. So maybe that's why there's more and more callbacks as the series of matches go on. Mm. And that sense that it is building off of what happened in the previous match. Something worked in the previous match, so they go back to it. Something affected the other guy in the previous match, so they try their best to evade it. You know, Okada, throughout these matches in this trilogy, has been trying to dodge the knee attacks. But now, that's why Tanahashi has switched it up to the arm attacks, because Okada's alert to the knee drop kicks, but also Tanahashi, even though he hasn't won the match by targeting his arm, boy has he hurt Okada in ways that Okada hasn't been hurt before. Yeah. You know, we've had Okada be dazed, like when Tanahashi wins his first match, it's more because he's like knocked him about and, ta- and Okada's surprised and hasn't experienced this kind before. Whereas with this, it's like he's literally wants pain to be running up and down yeah. a part of Okada's body, which it does very much so. Like, in order for him to win, he's got to go with his hurt arm, and he does, but boy, does it take everything out of him. And both times, Mm. both matches, he's got Gado wrapping an ice pack around his arm and, like, taping it up. And and then throughout the rest of, like, the ceremonies and everything and the microphone stuff, he's basically just got his arm to his side, and he, like, every time he's handed a trophy or a belt or whatever, he's having to use his good arm to do so. Ah, okay, okay, okay. I forgot to mention this. I just want to call back, because... We're obviously seeing just the in-ring side of this. You, you, like, that's primarily what we're talking about for this series. Obviously, you, you've mentioned some of the things outside just there. A, I think it's it shows it's a testament to how good they are that the in-ring content alone tells the story. B, there's a bit of Dark Arts mind games from Okada at the start because he has an extended video package before his main theme hits. And it's all images of him hitting Tanahashi. Remember this one? Remember this one? Remember this one? I like that. Little bit of um, shit alzery. Not, not nowhere near on the level of um, our Lord and Savior. Save, Lord and Savior. Sorry, Masanobu Fushi. But we move again. Like Okada does do his basics, going after the neck. But 
again, as we've just repeated so many times, it's a harder thing to convey. There is a moment when they're both trying to get up after Okada's had, has applied the STF that Tanahashi's clutching at the back of his neck. And so you get the logic behind it, but it's just, it's a case of that targeted attack, as we just keep saying, it's harder to convey, and it's something I think I missed in Okada's work. Or maybe he just doesn't do it as much anymore, or it's just because it's just part of his in-ring patter. It doesn't even, you know, relate to me thinking, oh, he's constantly going for the neck. Yeah. And I guess because I'm looking at this series of matches and I'm looking at how Tanahashi... I guess I say he's so good, but it's like he's so obvious with the limb work. So maybe it's just dumbass me that needs it, you know, very explicitly shown to me. Yeah, I am glad he's added the STF to his repertoire at this point. It's covered that I've basically gave up on the, all, the, all the other names. I've just wrote neck crank a lot. But the STF's a good visual move. And it also does work the legs as well. So you've got that going for you. And Okada himself does hit a couple of dragon screws. Yes. They're, they're more out of spite than out of limb work. Well, it's also, I suppose, because they've both done so much to the other one, they kind of know how to do the move now themselves. Yeah. You know, because oh, Tanahashi... In this match, and I think in at least one previous match, has hit Okada with the Rainmaker as well. Mm. But yeah, you're right. He does do a dragon screw to Tanahashi, but he doesn't then follow it up by continued attacks to Tanahashi's knee or anything yeah. like that. It's also funny. You know how I always say that Okada's like Ric Flair meets Cristiano Ronaldo? They literally do the uh, Okada climbing to the top rope and Tanahashi stopping him and press slamming him off the top. <laughs> yes. I wonder who sold. I wonder who suggested that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you look at his robes and stuff. Like he, he takes elements from Ric Flair. Who wouldn't? But yeah, it is like Tanahashi hitting everything that's worked on him in the past. Like I said, even going back to the 2010. Like there's a spot that they repeat from the 2010 match where, whilst he's got him in the headlock. I'm sorry to go back to it, but I just realised I got it on my notes and I just wanted to say it. Okada does the drop down on a run the ropes and Tanahashi just stops and goes down and puts him in the headlock. <laughs> and that's literally from their very first match. And maybe they did it in the second match as well because they do repeat the headlock control segments. But it is like, you know, Tanahashi taking a bit of everything to see if one combination of it will finally work. Also, another thing I wanted to say about this trilogy of matches, if it's a trilogy within... It's also a trilogy of matches all taking place in Sumo Hall this time, I noticed. Ah, like, none okay. of them were in the first three matches of the first trilogy, but all of them are in the, this next lot. And the third trilogy that shares one match with the first trilogy are all the Tokyo Dome matches. So I guess it's kind of like he's mo- moving up and up. He's like, he's beaten Tanahashi in the regular home of New Japan, but now he's got, but then the Tokyo Dome is like winning the cup finals at Wembley Stadium. There is a moment, you talk about torch passing, and the the finishing sequence of this match, for me, really hammered it home. I've used the phrase kitchen sink to describe what Tanahashi's thrown at Okada before, and he really, he he, he throws the bathroom sink too this time. He, He hits... Okada with a Rainmaker, he hits him with a Styles Clash, and then he hits him with a High Fly Flow within the space of a minute. And then Okada can just block the second High Fly Flow. Mm. Well, it's always, it seems like the one to the back is never enough. Yeah. Then why do it? <laughs> well, you know, you're softening him up. I suppose. That's the idea. And it's also funny when he does a High Fly Flow to the outside, It's which has been a spot, I think, in literally every one of the matches outside of the Young Lions match. Yeah, And usually it's been a momentum shifter, but this one, it's like 
there's no way to escape Okada because he hits him with Sling Blade, I think it is. Well, he repeats the spot that won him the match at Wrestle Kingdom. Yeah, he hits a high fly flow cross body. Yeah. Okada thinks he's got him all lined up and ready, but again, it looks like it's Tanahashi baiting him because they're at opposite corners getting up off of a double down. And Okada's looking to do his shotgun drop kick. Instead, Tanahashi pre-shotguns him with a drop kick <laughs> and then follows it up with the high fly flow cross body. And that's going to set him up for the high fly flow, which was what won it for him in the Tokyo Dome. Mm. But Okada knows that's coming, so he rolls to the outside. So Tanahashi just shifts and then does the high fly flow cross body. So instead of it's like, a, oh shit, I've taken a lot of damage, I need to hit him with something big, it's a, you're not getting away that easily yeah. moment. But then Okada has to hit the desperation move, which is only the second time after the first match they have from his return that he hits a tombstone on the outside. And that has them both down and they do, you know, the, the count out tease mm. with Okada barely being able to get up and gets in at 16 and then Tanahashi still being down when 18's called and rolling in at 19. Yeah. Again, it's one of those things that everyone does and maybe it wasn't as much of a cliche at this point. At the very least, it, the crowd's reacting to it, but I think you've got to... Unfortunately, these matches aren't matches that it's acceptable for them to end in a countout, really. The only matches that are allowed to end in countouts are like G1 block matches yeah. involving maybe Toriano or Zack Sabre Jr., someone who's more about being tricksy. I read in Power Slam, it's like um, so and so won by a countout finish, which is basically an insult in Japan. <laughs> well, it was how most main events finished until the mid 80s. Yeah. Hulk Hogan's big victory over Inoki was a count-out victory. <laughs> <laughs> Inoki wouldn't give him, uh, give him anything else. Yeah, I just love that there's all these callbacks that, obviously, for us, we notice it even more. But again, it's always mm. the thing I always love about Tanahashi is how he evades things, how he adapts, like the invasion attack match. He's got, like, 15 different ways of avoiding a Rainmaker. He'll duck it, he'll club at the arm so that it's because it's already injured... He'll twist around and turn it into a sling blade. He catches him at one point in a dragon suplex, which is usually a move he doesn't necessarily get to hit because it usually is that Okada can power him down and he hits it, turns it into a straitjacket. But again, because Okada's arms are weakened, I suppose that makes it... Because he, he never does that spot in this match. He never does do the breakdown of a dragon suplex into a straitjacket. Instead, he gets to hit the dragon suplex on two separate occasions. Yeah, because he's, cause he's worked on the arm so much, you're quite right. He's thrown everything at Okada, and Okada absorbs and gets through it. But you're right, by the end, I mean, you, you can't even like hand him stuff to that arm or anything like that. And Gado is very much like uh, Okada's gran when Okada's fallen out of a tree as a child. Well, did you notice Tanahashi literally going for everything? He even tries to pin him with the Gado clutch, Gado's yes. cradle hold. And he gets asked about that in the interview, I noticed, at one point. And uh, they even cut to Gado on the outside saying, Son of a bitch! <laughs> <laughs> like, come on, bro! <laughs> but yeah, we get back to the STF, which is a, a repeat of the invasion attack match, and... Okada sells it so well of how hard it is for him to get the hands clasped. But during that time, he's still holding on, locking him on the legs. So it's a struggle for Tanahashi to reach. Like, he can't even move at the first attempt. Mm. And then Okada holds on to the hole. But then, it like, it really hurts him so much that he has to let go. And he's still got him held in. 
but Tanashi's finally able to crawl to the ropes to get out. But yeah, yeah. Just, I love it how how Tanashi adapts things and like I said with the dragon screw arm whips. But even at one point he does his low drop kick, but it's to a seated Okada's shoulder. You know? Yeah. He's just he's so good. He is really really. I don't know if you know this, Simon, but I really like Hiroshi Tanahashi. <laughs> I picked up that vibe. I picked up that vibe. <laughs> Who do you prefer? Who um, do you prefer out of the two, Tanahashi or Okada? Okada. Mm. Why is that? Because of what we've viewed so far and that series of matches with Kenny Omega. I, I, that's that's really what helped. Like brought made brought me into Okada basically. Nothing against Tanahashi. It, it's it's difficult, but I do give the slight edge to Okada. Are you an Okada guy or a Tanahashi guy? It's another uh, one of them. It's another one of them. And we've you used the Cristiano Ronaldo um, analogy in in this episode already. In many and... episodes, too many episodes. Okada is very much a face with this crowd now. And as you say, there are various points like when Tanahashi fakes out the... the Tanahashi's working the heel in this match. If anyone's the heel in this match, it is him. Yes. Even when he's like, like I say, with the with the playing possum bit. But, and and it kind of him then doing the air guitar pose. Like it's one of the first, I think it's the first time since like the second match that he's had a chance to do a bit of posing because he's that in that con- much control of the match. Mm. But it's like, a, instead of it being a, you know, playing to his beloved crowd, it's like a... No, 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 no. Yeah, it isn't a million miles off of that. When he's targeting a limb, either he does it technically or he does it viciously or as with Invasion Attack and this one, he does it both technically and viciously. Sometimes it's clever low drop kicks to the arm and targeted limb work and, you know, those uppercut down elbows, uppercut down elbows. But he also does at one point just start stomping on him relentlessly. Channeling his um, inner Stone Cold Steve Austin. He is stomping a mud hole. Whilst Okada's in the ropes and even shoving red shoes almost. (laughs) Yeah. My God, man. (laughs) What have you become? Red Shoe's giving severe, leave it, Darren, he's not worth it vibes, trying to pull at his arm. But yeah, it's so also fascinating of using your signature moves, but as an act of defense, not even as a way to win the match. Like, Okada employs the Rainmaker at one point just because Tanahashi's in complete control and it's a defensive move and he can't pin him. And then he does the tombstone to the outside, not because he's utterly destroyed Tanahashi, but because Tanahashi's just been hit, basically has him finished if he doesn't hit it at this moment. Yeah. And so it's funny, like, in the past, what's been the moves that put Tanahashi away instead of the moves that are just to keep Tanahashi at bay? Like I say, he's thrown everything into this, hasn't he? Bless him. Yeah, I mean, they're so exhausting. They're so, it's such an epic that even after they come into the ring from the countout, they both are down for so long that Red Shoe starts a double KO count inside the ring. And that gets to, like, eight as well, doesn't it? And then, just again, when I love it when they sell the exhaustion, that they're both just wobbly on their feet. Like, falling into each other almost. But then they just have to get that adrenaline hit. And it's also, Okada still just always wants to fight through the pain. And it's either wise or just it's a show of how strong he truly is. And ultimately pays off. Like, he's doing literal forearms. Whereas Tanahashi's not engaging him in forearms. Instead, he's just hitting his arm. Uh, He does that same sequence again of the upper cuts, then the lower cuts. Lower cuts. You know what I mean. The downward strikes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Yeah, Okada does get some control with the uh, forearms. But then Tanashi, Tanashi always seems to have a way with his slaps. The slaps always seem to get to Okada. Mm. They always knock him to his knees or whatever. But then he throws him into the ropes and gets hit with the drop kick. Again, just the drop kick is a key move that happens in like the 
28th minute of a match. <laughs> and then he follows it up with the second one. Yeah. And that's when he goes to the Rainmaker that Tanashi ducks and hits with his own. And that's when he follows up with the Styles Clash and the High Fly Flow to the back. But then the next one hits the knees. And they both as they're both getting up, Okada like knows that he's got an opening now and does the drop kick to the back of the head. Tries to do the tombstone. Tanahashi reverses it, and that's what led to his downfall at Wrestle Kingdom. But instead, Okada reverses that reversal and hits it. Then they just go into the duck sequence, 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 and then Okada hits the Rainmaker. So that is Tanahashi. Just like how with the G1 ended with Tanahashi being able to duck the Rainmaker, it's still just constantly, he knows that full strength Okada, and he seems to have battled through the pain now. You always know when Okada's battled through is when he hits mm. that tombstone and he just goes, ah! <laughs> <laughs> And again, because it's just... And it's also curious, like, because obviously the next famous matches that he has is with Omega. And Omega, it's not about... Stra- so it's like, this is Okada being met by someone who can match his physical gifts with craft and intellect. Whereas I yeah. think maybe the reason you prefer the Omega matches and you prefer Okada is because that's just about physical displays like a man who could match him for athleticism essentially more than in-ring strategy i'm saying you're a dum-dum simon <laughs> but but yeah i know i'm trying to power through it <laughs> yeah but like i've said in the uh, okada mega stories like physicality is nothing without uh being able to tell a story in the ring and you can't say that Omega and Okada don't do that as well. They do, but it's more a battle of wills rather than a battle of one person's will against one person's intellect. Yeah. But no, I do love these matches as well. It's just obviously, again, because of the way I've I discovered uh, New Japan through doing this project, really, the Meltzer Five Star Project, uh, when we did our backlog, basically red hair Okada style coke binge <laughs> of matches, I got myself immersed into that storyline a bit more than I did this one. But that's one of the reasons I, I'm glad that you suggested this rivalry for our rerun the rivalry debut, so to speak, because I get to view these matches in a bit more of a... Uh, I get to give these matches more attention than I previously had. Mm-hmm. And where does this one fall for you in the star ratings? We did also talk about this match before as well. And this is the one that's like literally... Point zero one below the Invasion Attack match. The Invasion Attack is 9.74. This one's 9.73. And I can see where they're coming from. It feels like you should go for this match because it even out-epics the first one. It's a bit longer. It's slightly higher stakes. And it's a building from it, but I still just love the self-contained perfectness of that Invasion Attack match more. Mm. But I do think it's either... I, I feel like I have to give it five stars. Well, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Well. but it's, So it's like the top three so far are match three, the, the Dominion match where Tanahashi reclaims the title, and now the first and third parts of this trilogy of sumo hall matches. So it's like yeah. Invasion Attack... I guess I would say this, then Dominion, or Dominion, then this. Mm. It's a toughie. But they're all so close to each other. Like, if you know, if you want the speed read version of their rivalry so far, I would say you still have to watch the, the match where Okada comes back and beats him as a shocker, even though it's the weakest match 
of the Okada return since the Okada return, but it's the one that lets you understand the dynamic of those. You don't necessarily have to see the G1 match or even strangely the Wrestle Kingdom match. Yeah. To get where they go. Weird that the Wrestle Kingdom and the G1s are the ones that you're saying you don't need to worry about. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's odd, but <laughs> hey ho. It is basically as good as wrestling gets these matches are in many ways. For for <laughs> some people what they want from their wrestling. Yeah. In the 2013. Like, I think this is a match that, like, Jim Cornette would enjoy, but the Young Bucks would enjoy as well. Yeah. Yeah, I could go along with that. Well, maybe Jim Cornette wouldn't enjoy... I don't think... I'd be curious to see what Jim Cornette thinks about these matches. Nah, don't go down that path. But you know what I mean? I think people who like wrestling for it as a sport and for those who like it as a spectacle, because you've got got the sport with Tanahashi and you've got the spectacle with Okada. Yeah, yeah. I suppose. But anyway, we thought that was the end, Simon. And for a long time, it looked like it was. For all of 2014, these two did not meet in the ring again. But what happens, as we were saying, the Bullet Club happens and AJ Styles happens. The same night that Prince Devitt leaves New Japan, later on in the show, Okada is attacked by AJ Styles, unveiling himself as the new leader of the Bullet Club. And in quick succession, AJ Styles defeats Okada for the IWGP Heavyweight Championship. He holds that belt through to the G1 Climax, which is won by Okada, but AJ Styles takes place in a rarely seen third, fourth place playoff against uh, the other person who came runner-up in his group, one Hiroshi Tanahashi. Ah. So whilst Okada and Shinsuke Nakamura were having the forbidden match in the final, Tanahashi was beating Styles, and whilst Tanahashi said he'd never challenge Okada for the title again, he didn't say he wouldn't challenge other people. Ah. And so that puts him in for a title shot at... This event next year, King of Pro Wrestling, Tanahashi comes out of that triumphant and the IWGP Heavyweight Champion, and he has to defend it at Wrestle Kingdom, just as he had two years previously against Kazuchika Okada, who must have been partly, what the fuck's this guy doing here? (laughs) It's like, oh, for Christ's sakes. (laughs) To quote Tommy Lee Jones in the classic Batman Forever, why can't you just die? (laughs) But it's not ending, and neither is this series. So until tomorrow, Simon, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do so? They can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the number of different people's finishes Tanahashi hit in the closing sequence of this match. My name's Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-N, as in an arm attack. <laughs> as I'm running out of ones, but f- f- forget it. We've got 15 of these to go. <laughs> that's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterbox. If you put at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something, and I hope you'll continue with us on this journey as we rerun the rivalry. Well,